I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello. This week, what's the tallest possible building? Our underground cities, where we're going to be living in future. And what can we do if an asteroid ends up on an Earth-bound course? This week we're tackling the science questions that you have been sending in. So sit tight and buckle up for a fast and furious ride. I'm Chris Smith and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Well, let me introduce the panel of people who are here to help me answer your science questions today. Alan McCroby is an engineer at Cambridge University. What exactly, Alan, do you engineer? I'm a structural engineer, Chris. I tend to do large things like uh, bridges, towers, skyscrapers, dams. I can't do small things like houses very well, even though structural engineering does apply to bacteria and DNA and things like that. And when you say you, you do those things, is that actually coming up with the techniques and the processes that people will use on the ground to build them? Is it designing them? What's your role? It's all of those things. I used to be a designer, but now I teach people how to do it and I invent new ways of designing things, work, look at new materials, new types of building, that sort of thing. Thank you, Alan. Sitting right next door to Alan is Sophie Moles. She's a behavioural ecologist at Anglia Ruskin University and she looks at how animals communicate and how they find mates. And Sophie, one of your interests, I understand, is looking at fiddler crabs in Australia. Uh, Apart from the fact that you get to travel the world to these wonderful venues like going to Darwin where it's lovely and warm to study these crabs, what got you interested in fiddler crabs in the first place? Well, I should say it's it's a real um, real shame you have to go to the tropics to study these things. But it's really fantastic because they're sexually dimorphic, which means that the males and the females look different to one another. And the males put a lot of effort into their courtship displays. They've got one really, really big claw that they wave in order to attract a female. And they're also fantastically coloured. And I was really interested in teasing apart why they've go to so much effort in order to get a mate. But there are lots of colourful things in nature, Sophie. Why crabs? Uh, Why not? (laughs) Um... (laughs) It's interesting because they've got a lot going on. They're doing a motion display. They drum their claw against their bodies. They transmit these vibrations through the ground and they're colourful. You know, why have they got to do all of this in order to attract a female? But colour, as you say, is very, very important in many animals in order to get noticed and to impress females. Very important to get noticed. Thank you, Sophie. Uh, Sitting next to Sophie is an astronomer and that's Matt Bothwell. He's at the Institute of Astronomy. Question, I mean, I have to ask this, Matt. Did you have a telescope when you were little? Is that what got you into this? I actually didn't. I guess that's maybe my shameful astronomy confession. That uh, Yeah, I, I mean, I've always found the night sky kind of beautiful and fascinating, obviously, but I didn't actually own a telescope when I was little. The first time I used a telescope was using one of these really big professional ones on Tenerife. Wow. So why, why are you an astronomer? What do you actually do? What do you look at? Um, So I look at galaxies, so my thing is studying very, very distant galaxies, so looking back over billions and billions of years of the universe's history to try and study the conditions in the early universe, to try and work out why the universe looks the way it does nowadays. Um, I think that's just one of the most profound, interesting questions you can ask, right? Why does the universe look the way it does? Well, from that to a slightly smaller question, and that's uh, what Kyle Treber, who's our other guest this week, does. Carl, you are a neurocriminologist. What is one of those? Neurocriminology is an up-and-coming 
uh, area of criminology, and it's one in which we're trying to look more closely at the role of biological factors in crime. And of course, when we think of biology and crime, crime is a behavior, so the most important biological factors are those that go through the brain, and that's where the neuro part of neurocriminology comes from. But one of the really exciting things I think about this field is that the more we learn about the brain, the more we find out about how important environments are in relation to the brain, because of course that's what the brain's doing, it's responding to those environments. So it's a very interdisciplinary area of criminology. Basically the brain basis of behaving badly, would you say? (laughs) Yes, effectively. (laughs) Thank you, Kyle. Now, Alan, let's kick off with this question for you, which is, is there a maximum height for a building, we're being asked? And are we getting close in the modern era to what's theoretically possible? Or is there no limit? I don't really think there is a maximum height, Chris. We've already gone almost a kilometre with the Burj Khalifa. There are lots of proposals. Where's that one? The Burj Khalifa is in Dubai. It's a skyscraper. It's almost a kilometre tall, 820 metres, I think. Um, But the trick to go higher is to just taper, like the Eiffel Tower, like the Shard. The Burj Khalifa is tapered. And so by having a bigger area at the bottom, you can spread the stress out more. So the pyramids are a nice example. You can just sort of keep going and make something the height of Mount Everest. It's amazing they thought that they realised that 5,000 years ago and it's taken (laughs) us all that time in the meantime to rediscover that. Well, maybe all of the ones fell down. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I suppose so. But why should having a big base make a difference then? Why is that the way to go? It just spreads out the load more so you get smaller pressure, smaller stress. So you can have a sort of average stress all the way up. And what about the materials basis of this? Because concrete is wonderful, but is it up to the job of continuously taking a load which gets higher and higher and higher? Because the bigger your building is, the more load the ground at the bottom has got to take, isn't it? Yes and no. If you spread out as fast as you are sort of adding material, you can keep the stress the same. So it works with any material, whether it's uh, concrete or ice or marshmallow. (laughs) Sophie? Is there going to eventually become an environmental constraint in terms of the height of the building? Will you get too cold? There are lots of constraints like that. There's the wind um, and and so forth. But I think there was a proposal 100 years ago about a space elevator, which was actually to build something all the way into outer space. The proposal's still going. They're going to do it differently. But the original proposal was to build it from the Earth up all the way up to geostationary orbit. Were you also referring, Sophie, to the fact that in some countries people are, are demonstrating that you get significant changes in temperature and the local environment because of the built environment? You get buildings that radiate heat. They absorb heat during the day. They radiate that down at the ground. They also change the, the way that wind currents flow. And this has a, a local effect on the environment, which is not, not altogether great sometimes. I completely agree. Houston Station Forecourt, for example, the buildings around it, you get these local wind effects. You're absolutely right. There are lots of other things that, I mean, can you pour concrete? How do you get your concrete up there? There's lots of other problems. But the basic material problem is I think there's basically no limit to how high you can go. Well, that solves that one then. Thank you, Alan. Now, Sophie, uh, you've put your head above the parapet, not a kilometre above the parapet, but let's move over to you. Now, Daniel sends a question. You often hear about males impressing females in the animal kingdom, like peacocks displaying lots of feathers, for example, or stags rutting. But do females also sort of similarly show off to attract males? Okay, a lot of this relies on parental care. And it's down to the way in which male and female animals create their gametes, so their sex cells, their eggs and sperm. From the very start, a female animal has to invest a lot. They have to create a really nutritious egg from which the offspring will develop. 
sperm is cheap, <laughs> they're small, and they're really easy to make. So males can mate with multiple females, but for every female, that fertilisation is a real major decision. They've got to raise their offspring from scratch. So for the most part, they need to be really, really sure that the male that they're mating with is good quality. So the peacock has to prove his genetic quality to the female and she can make her choice. The stag has to fight and win that harem of females. There are some situations where the females care less about the offspring and the males provide more care. In those situations, we can get what's called sex role reversal, where the male is providing the care and they have to choose the female. In these cases, females have even evolved to be more colourful to advertise that they are worth investing in. So there are some birds that do this. Uh, Jacanas, which are a bird that creates a nest on water, and you can only fit four eggs in that, otherwise it will sink or they'll fall out. So from a female's perspective, the only way to have more offspring than four is to find another male. So she needs to have a mate, put him on a nest, and then move on and convince another male that she's worth investing in. You see this in some cold weather birds, some Arctic waders such as phalaropes where you can't have any more eggs because they'll get cold. But famously we see this in seahorses and pipefish because the male carries the eggs. So he has to be absolutely sure that she's worth bearing those offspring with. And in those cases the females have to advertise that they're good quality. So they often have the colours and they display these to the males in complex dances so that he knows, yes, you've got good genes and they're going to be good offspring and yes, I will look after them for you. Well, that's got to the bottom of that. Thank you, Sophie. Now, Kyle, we should consider here high achievers because we've got this question from Mike for you. Is it true that CEOs are more likely to be psychopaths than other people? Now, Mike doesn't say whether he is a CEO, a chief executive officer of a company, but Tell us, if you would, what is a psychopath and uh, and then whether or not that sort of set of traits do map onto people who do run companies and start businesses. Psychopathy is a concept by which we characterize individuals who have a certain number of traits. And personally, I think it's more interesting to focus on the traits because the disorder of psychopathy is actually not very coherent. It's not completely reliable. It's not, for example, uh, identified in the law. But the traits that we tend to see in the the idea of psychopathy are callous and emotionality, so a lack of feeling, particularly in relation to other people and their and their suffering, grandiosity and narcissism, self interest. So people who are really focused on themselves, uh, what they're going to achieve, and not as concerned about the emotional impact that may be having on on others because they themselves may not be experiencing that emotion. So you can see why these characteristics are potentially going to be useful for those individuals who are moving up the corporate ladder and who are able to put their interests first and also not to be bogged down perhaps by concerns about others. Now, there's a spectrum here. Everyone has different capacities when it comes to emotions, when it comes to their sense of self, how much they care about themselves and how great they think that they are. And people's success, the way that they will then manifest these into their their ultimate outcomes, will a lot depend on the environments they're in as much as these personality characteristics, if you will. Now, a lot of studies of psychopathy have actually looked at the other end of the spectrum. So um, Adrian Rain, who's one of the, the leading um, researchers in psychopathy, looked at temps because his theory was that 
actually these kind of individuals are not going to be able to have long-term relationships, long-term commitments, because if you're extremely callous and unemotional, extremely self-interested, you're going to use up your advantage and people, of course, are going to stop trusting you and stop uh, having those those, uh, social relationships with you. And they did find that there was a greater amount of psychopathy amongst people working in temporary jobs um, than you would find in the normal population. So what you basically need is a really psychopathic CEO to get a business off the ground and then a really altruistic CEO to keep it running once it's all running and keep the team happy. I think ultimately, if we look at the human society and human advancement, social behavior is clearly advantageous. So there will be individual circumstances in which this kind of behavior will be successful. But overall, because we are social organisms, we are successful. And so, yes, eventually it's going to be those social dynamics that are really going to lead to the success of, and the stability of, say, companies. So how common is this stuff? Can you, can you estimate like what percentage of the population might have these psychopathic type traits? a very good question. It's, it's, it's actually a very small percentage of individuals, so one, two percentage points that you might find in, in the population. But again, it's actually a really nebulous concept. It's not one that's really very well defined or very um, well accepted within the discipline. So some individuals think that it, that it is an important disorder to study, but others would argue there's no clear consistent, say, neurological elements that are associated with this. So in some individuals who lack uh, these emotional capacities, for example, there's certain areas of the brain that aren't as um, functional as we would see in, in, say, a normal uh, individual. But many people who have these psychopathic type traits may have perfectly functioning um, emotional areas of the brain. So we also sometimes distinguish the idea of sociopathy, which is more driven by the environment that an individual has. Then psychopathy, which we would tend to try to see as, as something that's being driven more by the individual themselves and something perhaps to do with their brain. But again, there's a lack of consistency. There's a lack of, of really strong evidence for this. So it's something that's still, I would say, under research. Thank you, Kyle. Well, from Scary Bosses, Matt, uh, here's a question for you out there in space. Say an asteroid is heading towards us. What can we do about it? Can we blast asteroids out of the sky? So, sounds like the stuff that Hollywood's made of <laughs> and in fact has been, isn't it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I think the first thing just to clarify is that we do get hit by asteroids all the time. Like, So we are being bombarded by stuff from space all the time. But the general rule is is that the smaller the thing is, the more common they are. So if you're looking at the really, really small stuff, so like kind of grain of sand and smaller, we're getting hit by this stuff all the time, so every day. But the bigger you go, the rarer things get. So we get hit by, say, football-sized things maybe once a day. But once you go up to the really, really big things that get quite scary, we need to be worried about as a species. We're looking at every few million years or rarer, right? So the last really big thing was 65 million years ago. It was the asteroid that wipes out the dinosaurs. If we're going to be on Earth for the long term, we do need to start worrying about these things and start thinking about the future. And so there are people that are planning for these things. Uh, So I think my favorite thing about this is that the person who's in charge of this is NASA. His job title is Planetary Defense Officer, which is like maybe the coolest job title in the world. And so, so we have a couple of things we can do. So there's broadly two classes of solution. We can either deflect the asteroid, so just push it out the way so it doesn't hit Earth, or we can destroy it. So if we're going to deflect it, there's some things we could do, like we could launch something heavy at it, like playing a giant game of snooker and kind of hit it out of the way. Or there's a proposal that we can kind of blast asteroids with lasers and hopefully evaporate enough mass from the asteroid that it will change its orbit that way. 
And there are some really out there solutions like coating asteroids with reflective materials and letting sunlight do the work. So if we were coating an asteroid with something reflective, then maybe the force of all the photons from the sun would eventually push push the asteroid out of the orbit. That's called the Yorp effect, isn't it? Yorkovsky, O'Keefe, Radsevsky, Padak effect. I, I, I believe that's, that's why we call it the Yorp effect. I, I think. didn't know that. There you go. Yeah. Um, but the, the other alternative is also just destroying it. I think if you're going to do that, the obvious thing to use is a nuclear weapon, right? But it gets a bit politically tricky because there are very strict laws against using It gets a bit dangerous. Well, you start firing nukes off the planet's surface. Well, absolutely surface. right, yeah. So, bottom line? We're safe for the time being. There's nothing any, anything near us, and it's good that we're thinking about these things now and planning for the future. It is indeed. Thank you, Matt. Alan, you're our engineer in residence. Here's a question for you. How can we build smarter cities and save space in crowded cities? Could we, for instance, this person says, create an underground city? Is that the way we're likely to be living in future underground? It is one of the ways to go. Uh, The the choices are to go up, go out or go down and um, go up. We've seen the social problems that you get from uh, high rises. There's a lot of sense about going down. There's lots of dystopian films where probably we've polluted the, the atmosphere and we all have to go underground. But there's a lot of good reasons why you should put a lot of your infrastructure underground. All your cars should be underground, your trains, etc. And Elon Musk, who you mentioned earlier, he's got the boring company you probably know all about. He's buying up tunneling machines. He's trying to make smarter, faster tunneling machines. There's an awful lot of infrastructure you can put underground. It makes a great deal of sense. So the answer is, is likely we probably will be going down as well as up. I think that's right, yes. And another thing is don't go up or down, just go out. Don't, Don't... overcrowd your cities you know spread out a bit put your cities elsewhere why do we all cluster into one great big megalopolis why don't we sort of just be a bit more decentralized move your studios to salford for example (laughs) bit late for a lot of that already alan with the world population being what it is and um 75 percent of people now live in cities i think isn't that the statistic or at least they will do pretty soon and the numbers of people who are moving to cities is increasing all the time that's exactly right yes but uh we don't have to Okay, we'll leave it there for that point of view. We'll see what people think, you know, why is that happening? Uh, And I hope they don't feel too guilty about it. I'm saying guilt because we've got Carl here. And uh, Babish is on the line. Hello, Babish. Hello, Dr Chris. All right, how are you doing? I'm very good. What can we do for you? Okay, uh, I need to know everything you know about the etiology of congenital heart defects. So congenital heart disease is what we want to talk about. Okay, Babish. The bottom line is that these are the commonest types of congenital abnormality, the heart. Um, I think about one in 200 births is affected by some kind of, of structural problem in the heart. And the reason this happens is because the heart is complicated and it starts to form very early on during development. And a huge number of genes from your whole genome are involved in putting the heart together in the first place. And for that reason, there are a lot of things that can go wrong. And so therefore, if you have a lot of chances for things to go wrong, occasionally things do. Now, some of these disorders are absolutely harmless to you. Many, many people don't even know that they have a congenital abnormality with their heart. In other words, they've got something which is not absolutely perfect. And that's because the body is so adaptable, it can compensate. Uh, In other cases, though, these things can be devastating. Luckily, people are getting better at diagnosing them and they're getting better at fixing them. Diagnosing them, we can tell if there's a family history. 
you might be more at risk. People also undergo studies during pregnancy. They have ultrasound scans, which are non-invasive and harmless, but can pick up problems very early on in pregnancy. And this means that you can be forewarned that something might need to be done for that child when it's born. So specialist teams can be on hand to make sure that nothing goes wrong during the birth of the baby. And then specialist cardiac and paediatric surgeons can come in and they can actually do a lot to fix these things. Sometimes it's because the blood vessels are actually connected up to the heart the wrong way around. Other times it's because walls that divide the chambers of the heart don't form properly and blood can flow where it shouldn't. And these things manifest when the baby is born because when you're inside your mum, you don't need half of the heart working because the blood is not being pumped around your lungs. It's just being pumped around your body. And uh, so therefore you only find out you've got this problem once you're born. Luckily, a lot of these things can be fixed. And also scientists are now working out the genetics of these disorders so they can screen for who might be at risk. And then we can find out either how to prevent the problem occurring in the first place or fix it afterwards. But thank you very much for the question. From baffling British weather sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here to looking at a cheetah from the inside out. Games making their way to the clinic and what to eat in your garden. Mm. The Naked Scientists In Short podcasts bring you a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com slash short or subscribe to Naked Specials wherever you get your podcasts. Now, still to come on the programme, we're also going to be asking why launch probe to the sun? NASA are saying they're going to be doing that. And also, could stimulating someone's brain the right way potentially make them want to commit a crime? But before we dive into those questions, we're actually going to have a little competition for the team. We're going to put uh, Kyle and Matt and Sophie's construction skills to the test. And we're going to ask Alan as our engineer in the studio to act as our judge. Now, everyone's got in front of you some spaghetti these are, there's about 15 spaghetti sticks there. We've also given you a well-known building material, which Alan mentioned earlier, which is marshmallows. And you've got about 15 marshmallows. If you eat them, which you can do, you'll just have less to build with. Because what we want you to do is to build the tallest structure that you possibly can. But crucially, it has to be freestanding. So we're looking for the tallest freestanding structure. You've got three minutes to do it. And then Alan will judge you. So off you go, you three. So Carl, Matt and Sophie, you get building. Alan, you and I can have a quick chat between us about actually what they ought to be doing. We'll assume they're not listening. What would be a good tip for them to make the most stable structure? As I said before, wide at the bottom, thin at the top. Triangles are good. Uh, rectangles have the uh, ability to sort of rack and shear. Turn into a rhombus. Yes, turn into yeah. a rhombus. And so if you do see a rectangle, you need to put a diagonal across it pretty and, quickly. And that stops those, the length changing. I'm talking to Sophie. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes don't, don't give them too many tips. But So basically, your advice would be big wide base, taper to a point... And why is that particular configuration particularly stable, though? Why are the buildings you referenced earlier ideal shapes and structures? It puts the centre of gravity lower down. That makes it more stable for a start. As I said, the load gets spread out over a wider area at the base. Now, they're using marshmallows and spaghetti. Is that a reasonable model for, for what an engineer would use in a big building? We don't use marshmallows and spaghetti, obviously. What, what do you tend to use? Uh, still in concrete, the main thing is timber's becoming ever more popular now. People are going to try and, trying to go higher and higher with timber. Timber's something of a new material, strangely, even though it's been around for millennia. People are now trying to build skyscrapers out of timber. Bamboo? Uh, bamboo as, as well, yes. 
It's a lot of work about that in Cambridge. You can build amazing scaffolding out of bamboo, as they do in the, the Far East. It goes right up the side of the skyscraper mm. out of bamboo. Well, of course, the benefit of using bamboo for your scaffolding is that it's much lighter than if you use big steel poles. So actually, yes. instead of having to have very big steel poles to support the weight of even more big steel poles, yes. you're, you're able to make the whole thing, the whole structure much lighter. Yes, you're right. Um, and then it's all about the joints with the bamboo because the bamboo is incredibly strong, but then you actually have to tie it together somehow. Right, well, we're sort of time up. So you have to stop building, I'm afraid, team. Alan, what, what are your thoughts? Should we ask each of them? Kyle, could you just talk us through your construction? Um, yeah, sure. It looks something like a drunken camel. <clears throat> I've got uh, four big marshmallows in the base, and then they're tapering up to two. So you can kind of imagine the four hooves going up to the front and back of my camel. There's a body in between, which is made out of one of these noodles. Uh, and then there's one single neck going up that didn't go anywhere because I ran out of time. Um, I would suggest that this is not the best building material. Alan, your critique? Um, it's nice. I like the camel thing. It's got artistic merit. It's up to the second layer. So there's some triangulation going on. So we're looking probably about 30 centimetres of height for, for Carl there. Um, uh, 50. But you're going as high as you are. You're really adding a bit on there. Yes. Okay, 50. Okay. Yes. Matt, what have you got in front of you? Yours, yours is much taller. It's still something of a monstrosity, I think. I think it's something maybe from War of the Worlds. It's a couple of... Describe tri- this for everyone. It's a couple of tripods which are held together by a, a kind of cross beam and a triangle on top. And then I've got a completely unnecessary extra couple of centimetres on spaghetti just to try and get some extra height. Alan, your verdict? No, it's very good. Uh, the, the, the tripods are naturally stable. I'm sure there would have been three p- tripods had there been more time and more, more marshmallows. I like the little thing on the top. Lots of real buildings do that. They put a little aerial on the top just to get a bit higher in the Guinness Book of Records. Well, the Shard in London is a classic example, isn't it? The top bit's completely impractical, they are all, all aesthetic. I think most of the buildings do that, yes. Sophie? Mine is leaning against my microphone. <laughs> um, it looks like yeah. the Eiffel Tower has melted. Uh, yeah, I ignored Alan's advice about the crossbeam and I thought I'd cheat by eating off half the marshmallows to create a stable, sticky structure, um, but it didn't work. Alan? There's a lovely tetrahedron at the top, which has got all the triangles everywhere, so it's really nice and rigid, but the lower part has got lots of rectangles and they've all just twisted. So, sadly, the top is standing up on a twisted, mangled lower story. Yeah, and it's like it's almost like uh, Sophie's tall building is, is resting on another tall building next door, which wouldn't have the designers of that building terribly happy, would it? Who wins, in your view, Alan? I think I have to give it to Matt. He did cheat a little bit by adding the little aerial, but that's how you win this game. Well, there you go. So, Matt, you are this week's Engineer of the Week. Thank you so much. Very well done. Matt, this question is for you, and it's from James. NASA are planning to launch a probe to the sun. What's the point in this? So why are NASA doing that? So this is the Parker Solar Probe, which is going to be launched uh, this summer, actually, August 2018. It's planning to go up. And it's basically going to let us answer loads of questions about our sun that we don't understand at the moment, which it sounds a bit weird, right? The idea that we might not understand things about our sun. We've been observing it for hundreds and hundreds of years. But there are quite a lot of mysteries about the sun, and there are things that we'd like to clear up. Uh, So one of the really big ones is what we call the coronal heating effect. It's one of the big unsolved mystery in physics. So the corona around the sun is the, you can think of it like the sun's atmosphere. It's all this kind of superheated plasma around the sun. And the weird thing is it's much, much hotter than the solar surface. The surface of the sun is maybe a few thousand degrees and the corona is millions of degrees. 
which seems to violate thermodynamics, right? You can't have something cooler heating something hotter. Uh, so there has to be something quite weird going on, maybe involving magnetic fields that we don't understand. Uh, so what the probe is, it's going to be the first thing that's actually going to visit the star. It's going to actually go into the corona and take measurements and let us solve these kinds of problems. Um, it's, all, it's, of course, not just the coronal heating problem. Uh, it's going to help us better understand the solar wind which is going to let us learn how to protect our satellites better and also is going to have implications for understanding how we can make spacecraft to uh, launch humans into the distant solar system. What's the timescale over which this is going to all be happening? So it's launching uh, August this year. I think it will take a few years to get to the sun. Um, it's going to it's going to do various flybys around the solar system to build up exactly the correct speeds to descend uh, into the sun. So it's going to be a few years before it actually gets there. All exciting stuff, all worth waiting for, though, isn't it, Matt? Thank you very much. Now, Kyle, Lewis wants to know, he says, you can stimulate the parts of the brain with electrodes to make people feel happy or pleasure. So could you stimulate other parts of the brain to make people want to be naughty and commit crimes? <laughs> Well, I think the first thing we have to do when we start to think about crime is remember that it's a behavior. So it's a very complex phenomenon and something that is the culmination of a decision-making process. So when we're talking about stimulating the brain um, and, say, activating emotions, those are one element that would go into that decision-making process. Now, you can look at this question in a number of different ways. I'm going to look at it from the perspective of saying uh, making people want to commit crime. So we're looking at motivation here. We're looking at perhaps this, these emotional processes, increasing your, say, your anger against someone who may have uh, spilt their drink on you or bumped into you. Um, or maybe even we can increase your temptation towards an object that you want, something in a shop that maybe you'd want to steal. But of course, there's lots of ways that people can respond to those motivations. And the way that they respond will be based on their experiences that they've had previously, which will lead them to remember certain types of behavior that have been successful. They'll have seen other people's behavior, and so they will have learned what so different ways that they can respond to this. And in the vast majority of cases, thankfully, most of us don't see crime as a way to satisfy our motivations. In some cases, yes, people will do that, and that may be because of the experiences they've had before. But even if we can increase that motivation, it's not going to increase the chance that these people will see crime as first the option that they might consider, and then, of course, down the road to the decision-making process itself, the one that they choose amongst the other alternatives that may, they may see. Now, we tend to think about the decision-making process in this kind of rational way, lots of different options and evaluation and considering consequences. There is another type of behavior, which is habitual behavior. And habitual behavior happens when you've done something over and over again and you've developed a habit. You've been in a situation or this place before. You've acted a certain way. It worked great for you the time uh, in previous experiences. So, sure, you're going to just do that again. And these can be more automatic type of behaviors. We haven't studied enough of these habitual behaviors uh, in criminology, but likely they are influencing a lot of this persistent crime that we see, which is one of the most obviously problematic aspects of crime. And it's possible then that these could be stimulated more easily or with a more simplistic framework than these deliberate processes. So that would be the closest you would get to it. But I still think it's such a complex type of behavior that all we can do is perhaps influence some of the information that goes into that process. That's a relief, isn't it? So no one's going to come along and stimulate your brain and make you commit crime anytime soon. Kyle, thank you. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company 
at spitfire.co.uk. Now, before we go on with more of your questions coming in, we're going to ask the team some quiz questions. It's our Brain of the Week competition. We're going to have two teams. Kyle and Matt, your team one. And Sophie and Alan, you are team two. So, round one is called The Birds and the Bees. So, Kyle and Matt, have a listen to this. What can exert more force, the kick of a secretary bird or the pinch of a coconut crab? What do you think? I think it's a coconut crab. Well, it has to be crabs, right? <laughs> like, I mean, like, you know, crustaceans are famous for being able to do these really forceful pinches, aren't they? Yeah, although some birds are known for having very hard kicks, but... Interesting. Uh, yeah, I reckon the crab. Go with the crab. Going for the crab. Get a bing for that. It is indeed the coconut crab. It lives in the tropical Indian and Pacific Oceans. Did you know that, Sophie? Yes. About the coconut crab? You would have got that one right, wouldn't you? It's a good job you weren't on their team. It would have been a slightly foregone conclusion. The pinch can exert the force a force comparable to a boxer's punch, but the secretary bird's kick isn't to be underestimated because these gangly birds can deliver killer kicks with a force equivalent to five times their own body weight. Isn't that extraordinary? Right, Sophie and Alan, your question. What's more poisonous, a cone snail or a daddy long legs? Cone snails are very, very poisonous, but it's got to be a trick question, hasn't it? Is it the fact that the daddy long legs can't pierce your skin? Is that a urban myth? I think that's an urban myth. It depends okay. on how you define daddy long legs as well. What would so you like to go you, for? You go, snail or daddy long legs? I would like to go for the cone snail. Okay. Right. Sophie's okay. going cone snail. <laughs> okay. It's the right decision because oh, it is yes. the cone snail. <laughs> now, cone snails are predatory. They're beautiful if you've ever had the chance to see one. They're seed-dwelling snails. Do not tread on them because the estimated lethal dose uh, for a geography cone snail is less than 0.1 milligrams per kilo body weight. So if you're an 80 kilo human, that's just 8 milligrams that you need to poison you. Daddy long legs being poisonous massive urban myth there are three species of creepy crawlies that people refer to as daddy long legs two of them the harvestman and the crane fly are not venomous whatsoever um, the flaccid house spider can give you a nip um, but to a human it's absolutely harmless so well done it's one all so far round two we're on to now this is called up up and away kyle and matt have a listen to this assuming no impact from space debris what's going to survive longer in space Starman's tires or his windscreen. Now, Starman is Elon Musk's Tesla. He blasted into space last week aboard the Falcon Heavy, and uh, it's currently on its way, having missed its target of Mars, to the asteroid belt. So this car is making its way across space. What's going to last longer, the windscreen or the tyres? I might have to defer to Matt on this one. (laughs) Assuming no impact from space debris is the confusing thing, right? Because I I assume that would be this constant rain of stuff that would wear things away. Um, I guess, like, does rubber decay over time? I would have thought rubber would be more resilient than glass, presuming that the windscreen is made of glass in this case. Um, But this is assuming it's not getting hit by stuff, right? Um, We'll guess windscreen. It's a good guess. Yep, the glass in the windscreen. Solar radiation that you were referring to earlier, Matt, will break carbon-carbon and carbon-hydrogen bonds, for instance, like those found in the rubber of car tyres. Glass is mostly inorganic. It's made of silica, that silicon dioxide. So the glass is going to be more resilient. But there is a caveat here. Windscreen glass is laminated to make it safety glass. So that means there is perspex or plastic in the glass as well. So that's going to discolour and it will come apart with time. So the glass is not completely immune to the solar radiation, but it will probably be a bit more resilient than the tyres. So you made a good choice there. Well done. Got to get this one right to stay in the game. Over to you, Sophie and Alan. How many Earths could you fit into the distance between the Earth and the Moon? I'll give you a choice of three. Is it 10, 30 or 1,000? What are your thought processes? 
Are you trying to uh, do the math? <laughs> um, it's, uh, I'm just I'm, watching. Uh, <laughs> is it a quarter of a million miles to the moon, is it? Is that right? And is it the, the diameter? Metric on this show, the please. Iris, diameter we haven't the left Earth the EU is, yet. <laughs> diameter of the Earth is 12,000 kilometres. And, okay. and, um, Going to have to push you. 10, 30 or 1,000? Not 1,000. It's got to be 30. Shall we? Yes. 30. Going 30. Yeah. And, you're, and you're absolutely right. On average, the moon's about 380,000 kilometres away from the Earth. The diameter of the Earth, 12,756 kilometres. Bit of division later, 30 Earths about, there are, thereabouts. So, well done. That's plus one to you as well. So, it's level pegging. And uh, on to the final round, round three. Hit me one more time. So, Kyle and Matt, hit with an identical force, what accelerates the fastest? A cotton wool ball, a golf ball, a football... Or is it a trick question and they all accelerate at the same rate? So I think this is about elastic versus inelastic collisions, right? So mm, I guess I it would vaguely have to be, remember that from my physics class. I think it would be a golf ball. That That's the initial response, but then I, yeah, I'm, no, I'm, I'm going to go well, with your golf ball. Because you're going to go that's golf my, ball. But I'm wondering if it's all at the same time. You got a you got a no no for that one. Actually, the cotton wool ball and the physics is that Newton's second law is force equals mass times acceleration. The acceleration is force divided by mass. Therefore, so the lightest object with the smallest m mass, the cotton wool, is going to accelerate the fastest. It's not going to have much momentum though, and that means it's going to feel a lot of air resistance, so it's not going to travel very far. So it was it was a bit of a sneaky question. Let's hope they get this one wrong and then you'll stay in the game. Right, Sophie and Alan, in a glass filled with water and ice up to its brim, when the ice melts, will the water level in the glass A, drop, B, stay the same, or C, overflow? Up to its brim, so then it will drop because ice is greater in area, uh, volume than water. So once the ice melts, as long as it's up to the glass's brim, the level will drop. Yeah, let's go with that. You're saying the level's going to drop? Yeah. No, actually, the level will stay exactly the same. And the reason for this is ice is, of course, made of water. So the ice is displacing a volume of water equivalent to its own mass because the mass of the ice is made of water, so it's one gram per centimetre cube. So actually it's displacing a volume um, which is equivalent to its mass, so that means the level of water won't change when the ice melts. It will stay the same. Yeah, there you go, there you go. Right, we're on to the tiebreaker now. So, to the nearest 10, how many balloons can the current Guinness World Record holder blow up in an hour? By mouth, how many balloons world record inflation in an hour? How big is your balloon? Gonna have to hurry you. Okay, right, here we go. Have, have you got Have you got a number? Have you thought? Um, don't tell me it, but just have you thought of a number? Yes. You two, yes. Yeah, have you two thought of a number? Yes. No, you mustn't cheat. Okay, so there's honesty, and this is Kyle's a criminologist, so she'll know if you're cheating, right? <laughs> so you have to tell us what number you first thought of. So, Kyle and Matt, what is your suggested number? One thousand four hundred. One thousand four hundred, and Alan and Sophie. Oh, we had one thousand. The answer is nine hundred. And ten. This is according to the Guinness oh. Book of World Records. 
Hunter Hewen from Colorado, trained for six months. He also worked with a surgeon to get the most efficient balloon tying technique, and he even worked on techniques for conserving air and avoiding getting lightheaded. And during his record-setting feat, he nonetheless still experienced tingling in his hands and said he got changes to his eyesight as well, which is a bit of a worry. But what that means is that the points go to Sophie and Alan. So well done. That enables you to clinch victory from the jaws of defeat, and you are this week's big brain of the naked scientist. Thank you very much for that. Now, Sophie, here's one for you, which has been sent in from Katie. Most of us have probably encountered a two-timer on the dating scene. But what about animals? Do they ever cheat the rules? Poor old Katie. Sounds like she's had a rough time. What do you think? Oh dear, Katie. Well, actually, yes. Um, For the most part in the animal kingdom, polygamy is the name of the game. So animals mate multiply. From a male's perspective, that makes sense because, as I said earlier, um, sperm is cheap to make. They're very small um, cells and males can fertilise multiple females. So from an evolutionary standpoint, in getting genes into the next generation, for many animals it makes sense for males to mate multiply. But that doesn't mean that the females are losing out because females can mate multiply too. They can mate once and get some genes for their offspring, but they could maybe mate twice and get some better genes for their offspring. In some animals, females can store sperm, so they can actually let sperm competition sort it out. Bees do that, don't they? Because I was gobsmacked when a a bee expert, when I interviewed him at the University of Western Australia, said that the, the queen bee, in some cases, mates once and can store sperm for years and and continue to fertilize offspring from that one-off mating mm-hmm. with with many many males indeed i mean in in the hive that's her family they're all very genetically related to her she won't want to mate with any males that enter that hive because they'll be her sons but yeah many insects can store sperm for a long time so it's not a bad thing if you then mate with another male because you might get some new sperm or better ones so you get better quality offspring and they might be compatible genes as well, which make for better offspring too. Or you might be able to provision them with different immunities. So if a disease breaks out, you don't lose all of your offspring because you've mated with multiple males who offer different immunities through their um, through their genes. But you do get genuine cheats as well. So some animals can offer nuptial gifts as a kind of mating gift to a like female. What? Uh, food is a good nuptial gift. Always I mean, works. It's always food. works. It's food, a surefire winner. flowers, that sort of thing. Um, food is great because females have to produce offspring, so they need a lot of energy to make a, a baby or an egg. So males can give females nuptial gifts involving food. And there are some famous examples in spiders where they wrap the gift in silk and the female has to unwrap it. And while she's unwrapping the gift, her present, (laughs) he gets to mate with her. So the more well-wrapped that is, the longer the mating, he transfers more sperm. But some of these cheating male spiders will wrap something that isn't actually food. So a bit of a leaf or a twig that he's found. And that's a real cheat. And does the female pay him back by eating him, which seems to be what most spider females do to the male? If he's not quick enough, then yes. (laughs) So how quickly does she discover and become disappointed? Well, it will be on on opening the (laughs) the gift. But sometimes males want to be eaten in some spiders. Once they've mated twice, they actually lose the ability to mate again. So they may as well sacrifice themselves 
and then the protein that makes their bodies will make more eggs containing their genes. So that ultimate sacrifice can be really good for him. That really is the ultimate sacrifice, mm. isn't it? Thanks for that wonderful answer, Sophie. Now, Matt, we've got this question which actually came into the Naked Scientist forum, nakedscientist.com slash forum. Um, and what they're discussing on there is about gravitational shielding and someone saying, what is gravitational shielding? Could we make something that could shield an object from the effects of gravity so you have a sort of anti-gravity shield? So I really like this question. So gravitational shielding is this science fiction idea that you could create some kind of exotic material and it would shield the force of gravity. So you could effectively use that to reduce the weight of objects, which would have all kinds of amazing applications, as you can imagine, if you wanted to make really tall buildings, for example. You could make the construction materials weightless and then just levitate them up. It would be lovely, wouldn't it? It Uh, would, yeah. And sort of climbing the stairs would be a gift. It would be easy, yeah. Um, So we already have experience with shielding forces. So gravity is one of the four fundamental forces of the universe. And we already know how to shield one of the other fundamental forces of the universe, which is electromagnetism. So electromagnetic shielding is pretty common in our phones and in our computers and our our microwave doors are electromagnetically shielded. And it's good that they are because then we don't cook ourselves every time we turn our microwaves on. Um, Unfortunately, gravity and electromagnetism are pretty different And so as far as we know, we can't build gravitational shielding. So there's been lots of experiments through the 20th century to investigate whether this is possible, and they've all come up negative. So as far as we know, it's not actually possible. I think one way to, one easy thought experiment that you can prove it to to yourself that it would be impossible is that it would violate something called conservation of energy, which is one of the fundamental rules in science. Uh, So if you can imagine having some sheet of gravitationally shielding material you could put this sheet under a very heavy object and then this object would become weightless and you could lift it up in the air with ease and then you could just quickly whip the sheet away and the heavy object would come crashing down to earth and release loads of energy and all that energy has just come from absolutely nowhere. So if anything gives you something for nothing in this way, uh, I think you you have reasons to be suspicious. Sounds like Theresa May's magic money tree, doesn't (laughs) it? Thank you for that wonderful answer. Alan, we've got this question here which is How does a city, Cape Town for instance, run out of water? This is a serious issue, isn't it? Cape Town looks like it's going to be one of the world's first major developments that will actually turn the taps off and people will have no water. How on earth has that happened? It's a problem that many cities face, particularly in hot countries. I don't want to ascribe any blame to Cape Town people because I'm not that familiar with the problem, but it does look like a case of bad planning that every city knows it needs a certain amount of of water. One thing you should be clear about is is a sort of distinction between the residential uses for drinking and washing and so forth, as opposed to, say, agricultural uses, particularly in hot countries, that could be irrigation or or industrial uses. And those latter ones are usually the big users of water in hot countries, many, many times more than, than, than the cities. Um, there. And I don't know what's happened in Cape Town in that respect. I mean, I know they have the wineries, there'll be farms around Cape Town. They will have taken water, and I don't know what they're going to do about that. Obviously, you don't want all your, your vineyards to die, the farms are needed, but usually it's a comparatively small amount of water that you need to keep a city going and one thing you can do is is bring it in from somewhere else um in south africa they have the the lesotho highlands water scheme is the neighboring country lesotho where they've bring water from the dams in the mountains there but they take those to the industrial areas elsewhere in uh, north of south africa i don't think that gets down to cape town but it really shouldn't have happened. I mean, many cities face this, even London, Miami, there's a big list, Perth in Western Australia, there's lots of cities face this problem. You just plan for it. The thing that 
concerns me, though, is if you look at the reports of South Africa, there's a gentleman who drills boreholes, and he says he normally has five or six people on his books at any one time waiting for a borehole. He's now got 6,400 waiting for boreholes. So everyone's making their own salvation here, digging a borehole. This is going to deplete the groundwater. We're just kicking the can down the road, aren't we? Because we, we have not solved the underlying problem, which is a very big aggregation of people and insufficient water gathering in that particular area to service them. That's absolutely right. The groundwater is very rapidly depleted if you start to pump it up, and that's happened in many places around the world. You really need to have a bigger approach to the problem. You see the Chinese, um, the south-north water transfer project, where they're taking vast quantities of water from, I think it's the Yangtze, and taking it thousands of miles north up, up to Beijing. There are many schemes like this around the world. There's a proposal to run a pipeline from a river in, in, in Turkey over to northern Cyprus that, that's sort of very dry. There are places in the world with lots of water, and it can be transferred. There's also the concept of virtual water that, that you sort of import, you know, chocolate or whiskey are very intensive. So don't make your own because there's thousands and thousands of litres of water goes into one litre of whiskey. So buy the whiskey one litre of whiskey rather than bringing it in. And the same applies to tomatoes or, or, all the way down. You can bring in the water intensive thing rather than trying to grow it yourself. Let the people with the water grow it. Let the people with the water have the problem. Alan, thank you very much. Sophie, back to animal mating and dating. And this question says, which animal is most aggressive when it comes to getting a date? Is there one that's uber aggressive? There are some uber aggressive animals, but they're very rare, to be honest. So over evolutionary time, we have seen the adaptations for conflict largely between males in order to access females. But realistically, if you go and get yourself really badly injured during a fight even killed, you're not going to pass any genes on. So we see a real reluctance to use these weapons. So, for example, deer interlock their antlers and they have pushing contests. That's after they've roared to demonstrate their size and their stamina. They don't just stab each other with them. So we see what's called restrained fighting. And fighting, in inverted commas, tends to be resolved via communication, especially when there's a likelihood you'll get really hurt. However, if it's really worth fighting for, if you've got a really good quality resource, and that in genetic terms would be a lot of females, then you do tend to see really dangerous conflict. And a good example of this are elephant seals. So these fight hammer and tongs for access to a whole harem of females on a beach. If you're a weakling male and you're just not competitive, it's just not worth fighting. So you're not going to have any offspring. If you try to take on the big dominant male, you just get terribly injured or killed. If, however, you might have a chance of taking him on, if you're possibly the same sort of size or strength, then you can get incredibly vicious fights because you could have all of these females and pass all of your genes on and have lots of offspring. Losing that fight is almost the same as being that weakling male. In each case, you don't get any genes going into the next generation. So it's really, really worth fighting for if you've got a chance. You can get really bloody encounters between these guys. One interesting perspective that was put to me about 10 years ago by a lady I interviewed who'd been studying deer in Scotland, her name is Lushka Crook, she pointed out that actually the genes that make for a really big, powerful male deer are not going to be the best genes to, if they end up in a female offspring, to nurture a baby 
because these animals are sexually dimorphic. The males look quite different to the females. And actually, this is quite a crafty way of keeping the uh, diversity in the population because the males are not made too male or too masculine because those genes would disadvantage a female offspring and vice versa. So it sort of keeps everyone a bit in check, but there's still there is still a difference between males and females. Yes. Genes obviously get transferred into the offspring, whether they come from the male or the female. So if you have a daughter, she will inherit um, genes for male characteristics too, and could then transfer those onto her son when she eventually has that. So in deer, for example, a male may inherit um, the genes that determine his antler structure from his mum because they came from his grandfather. We tend to see this also in other sexually selected traits, for example, in famously in pea fowl, the peacock, as you said earlier, has this enormously elaborate train. The female, however, does not. She's fairly drab. She has to incubate. He does nothing. He gives her his genes, but she has to do the work of looking after the eggs. So she has to be cryptic and camouflaged. But she has still inherited some of those male traits. It has a little glossiness and that might be a bit of an evolutionary bind. She's still a little bit spottable when she's on the nest. A nice example from the UK is ducks. So the males are really nice and shiny and elaborate to show how good they are. They don't do anything to help with the child rearing. Females have to incubate, so they're camouflaged because they're a sitting duck. You know, they're really vulnerable. You got there and beat me to it. Sorry. <laughs> but that's the punchline. If you if you look at birds, um, the British birds are great for this. Look at your wildfowl. If they look drastically different so the male is very colorful the female is not you can bet your bottom dollar she's looking after the offspring and he's not if you get monogamy so grebes for example they look the same because they're both having to prove to one another how good they are and they both benefit from investing in those offspring and and bring them up together Makes you feel guilty almost doesn't it (laughs) thank you sophie now talking of feeling guilty and cheating us on kyle we've had this question for you from Liz. Why is guilt so variable? How come some people commit awful crimes without feeling guilty, yet other people feel guilty needlessly or for minor wrongdoings? There's a couple of things that might make me or other people like me more likely to feel more guilty. Um, One of them is potentially our emotional capacities. So if we are emotionally um, reactive, then we're more likely to experience our emotions more strongly. But even beyond that element, there's also the learned aspect of it. And of course, our emotions are very closely tied to our memories. And so a lot of our application of these emotions will depend on our experiences and what we've learned. So as much as I love my mother, she'd give me a lot of guilt trips. (laughs) And so I think definitely I've carried that on and I'm definitely trying not to do that to my own children. But we feel very differently about the behavior. So We talk uh, in criminology about the idea of rules. And, of course, crime is a type of behavior that breaks the rules, specifically the rules of law. But we're interested in other kinds of deviance um, that might break more social norms that aren't as formalized of rules. And the guilt and also shame, which is a related emotion, help to strengthen those rules. So if we think that something is wrong, we might not care about doing the right thing because we don't feel very strongly about it. So the emotions back that up. If we, one, think it's wrong and then also are going to feel particularly guilty or ashamed about it, then that emotion uh, and that rule is going to be stronger and we're more likely to follow it. So I think a lot of the variation when you think about people feeling guilty about crime may not actually be variation in their feelings and their emotions, but rather variation in the rules that they think 
um, they should or shouldn't follow. Uh, if they don't think it's wrong, it doesn't matter if they have strong emotions about it because they don't care about doing the, the, wrong, the wrong thing. They don't see that as wrong. So the guilt won't feed into, it won't be part of that decision making or eventually that crime. Thank you, Kyle. Uh, just time to squeeze this one in for you, Alan. How can we be certain that a bridge, when we build one, is actually going to stay up? Um, I don't know about certain, but you certainly be fairly confident about it. It's been designed by a structural engineer and then checked independently by quite a few others. Um, when you would not be quite so certain is if, if it's a fairly innovative bridge that, whose type we haven't seen before. And there's a thing in reliability theory called the bathtub curve, I think they call it, which says if something's going to fail, it sort of fails either early on, on day one or two, or it's going to be a long time, many years. The early failures are there's some dodgy detail or there's a bad bit of design and you don't really know till you've built it and then load tested it. So don't go on bridges on their opening day is a sort of general rule. If it makes the opening day, it's going to be fine on day two, day three, etc. But then after several decades, you start to get corrosion, you get fatigue, cracks will open up, etc. You'll get material degradation. So then it starts to become more likely to fail. But we do have good bridge inspection regimes. For really long bridges, the hardest thing is actually keeping it there in, in a hurricane or a storm. It's all about the wind design it's actually quite easy to hold a traffic jam in the air for several kilometers you just need really big cables and so don't go on big bridges in hurricanes i mean you wouldn't be you would be blown off how does an engineer like you anticipate and model that sort of scenario do you have a computer program that pretends it's got the bridge sitting there and can work out all of the forces a bridge would be feeling in said hurricane for example is that how you do this we do it on the on the computer and we make scale models of it in the wind tunnel but we now have fairly sophisticated computational wind tunnels and the real difficulty is the wind if you're looking at the bridge you're looking at the wrong thing we really need to understand the wind and, and all the swirls and vortices and the forces that it creates out of nowhere it makes the bridge move a bit which then makes another vortex there's a feedback system it's really very complicated and in fact because i know how complicated it is i'm not all that certain that, that, that we should be quite so confident that we know what we're doing I and mean, we are very confident but you know we want one in a million chance that this is going to go wrong whereas I, I sometimes struggle to put the figures quite so high but because it is really difficult physics because things do, do end up needing changes don't they if you look at the tate modern bridge in london yes uh, it was a bit of an oversight, wasn't it, on the part of the engineers that people were actually going to walk across this bridge. And it's once people began walking across it that it set up resonances on the bridge and the whole thing was swaying from side to side and they had to stabilise it. Did no one actually think, well, someone's going to use this bridge when they were testing it and, and building the model? No, they did. And it's quite an interesting one. The, the, the fundamental physics there is actually biology. It's actually all about the people and it's not actually the bridge. It's the way the people change the way they walk. When it, There was a feedback and, and the people actually behaved like a fluid. And as the bridge moved a bit, they changed the way they walk but actually that really demonstrated the day one phenomenon you know i, I told my family don't go on it that day you know it's it, it's it's a load test it's an experiment thank you alan and that is it for this week thank you to our guests sophie moles you heard alan mccroby there also matt bothwell and kyle triber thank you to katie Haler who put the program together and do be sure to join us next week when we're going to be exploring a whole new field of biology it's the subject of xenobiology where scientists have invented an artificial form of dna and they've got very high hopes for it. We'll hear what they are next time. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.